As we get started this morning, I want you to think about things that um, you do out of obligation, okay? Things maybe like uh, mowing the lawn or taking out the trash or doing laundry. Uh, you know it needs to be done, but it's really probably not your most favorite thing to do. You don't particularly enjoy it. We, we typically do things out of obligation with a reluctant compliance, right? It's a unwilling submission to something we just know needs to get done. And unfortunately, I think it's how many people choose to live even today in the church. Because it's easy for us to, to look at obedience the very same way, doing the right thing, knowing something needs to be done, but it's more of a reluctant compliance. It's fulfilling a duty without a real heartfelt devotion. And actually, it's nothing new. It's been part of human nature from the very beginning. Even back in the Old Testament, Isaiah writes, and he says in chapter 29, verse 13, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. That's religious obligation which is doing the right thing without a heartfelt devotion. And I think we have to be very careful not to allow ourselves to slip into that very same pattern, especially when it comes to passages like we've looked at in recent weeks, like submission to governing authorities that may not align with what we believe in, with submitting to harsh people, who treat us wrongly, with submitting to spouses who are disobedient. Because we can turn our submission into a reluctant compliance. It becomes an obligation. But submission in and of itself is not just a, a passive resignation. We under, need to understand that on one hand it is. It's relinquishing control, but that's only half of it because the other part of it is a willful, active decision to rely on the power and work of the Holy Spirit so that we find our strength to obey through our dependence upon God, not our own strength, especially when we find ourselves in difficult situations. It's what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 12, 10 when he writes, Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. You see, what Paul describes here is actually the setting of the letter that Peter has written, isn't it? Remember, because he's writing to a persecuted people, and it would be easy for them to, to feel defeated by the distresses, the difficulties the hardship, the persecution. But, but Peter is reminding them, not if you look to the Lord. Because submission is where they ultimately find their strength. And the same is true for us. Relying on the Spirit is what reveals the true character of Christ. It's how we fulfill that responsibility to be a holy priesthood in the midst of a pagan society. So as we open up God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, so much of what we have talked about in recent weeks, including what we will see together this morning, is so counter to our human nature. It's simply not possible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, a transforming work where you change our desires, our reactions, and replaces it with something that can only come from you. And so, Lord, I would just ask, as we open up your word this morning, that you would speak to the hearts of your people by the power of your spirit, according to the truth of your word, to the praise and glory of your name. Would you transform us to become more and more like Christ? We ask, Lord, that you do this according to your name and to your glory. We pray this. Amen. All right, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll pick up where we left off last in verse 8. I'd love for you to follow along with me there. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. To sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Once again, as I already mentioned, Peter is trying to help his audience understand what it means to be a holy priesthood in the midst of a pagan society, doing what is right in the eyes of God, even when you're treated wrong by other people. Because our gut reaction, if we're, if we're honest with each other, our, our gut reaction when we experience some offense towards us is a fleshly response. If you're my age, you may remember this. They may still do this, but I remember when I was in middle school, one of the silly games we used to play was a kind of a flinch game, right? Where you'd make a move towards them, and if they flinched, if they went to protect themselves, then you got a free shot on their arm, right? And so the goal was to not react, right? So when they made that move, you're just like, that didn't bother me, you know? Which was kind of hard to do because your natural instinct is to guard yourself, right? But I think the same thing is going on here because when we are offended or when we are persecuted or we are pushed by other people, our fleshly response is to react. I'll call it a, a, a flinch of the flesh. That's what we naturally want to do. And, and this idea of submission where we choose not to react as they expected goes against every natural instinct that we have. So Peter wants to give us some, some guidance on how to cultivate this godly, submissive response in the midst of persecution. And what's interesting as we look at verse 8 is how he connects our individual character to our Christian community. Because verse 8 is all about how we relate to one another within the body of Christ knowing that our internal unity, don't miss this, our internal unity is what determines our external witness. So he starts with us. It's why Peter begins with being harmonious, finding unity in the midst of our diversity. It's the idea of being like-minded. I think Paul helps us when he describes it in 1 Corinthians 1.10, and he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. That's what it means to be harmonious. Because when you have enemies coming at you from outside of the church, 
You don't want to make more enemies inside the church. This needs to be a safe harbor of unity and harmony. As Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, not some men, all men. Protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because as Jesus made it clear, he said, a house divided against itself, including the church, will not stand. Instead, we must stand together in order to stand strong. Be harmonious. As Paul writes to the Philippians, standing firm with one mind, with one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Focus on what we have in common, not what makes us different, which is only possible if we are sympathetic towards one another. It's the idea of compassion, and compassion requires us to get close to another person, to to enter into hard places. In fact, it's more literally a willingness to enter into someone else's suffering. That's what is the idea here. That's why Paul will write and say in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers because of the unity, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, Because of the unity, all the members rejoice with it. A deep sense of unity always leads to a heartfelt sympathy, or probably better said is heartfelt sympathy leads to a deep sense of unity. It's a willingness to see the good in someone, even when they're at their worst. Because it's natural for us when we are the recipient of what some I call venomous speech, vitriolic hatred or anger, that, that we flinch in the flesh. We get defensive. We become self-reliant, self-determined, self-protective. And it's a whole different ballgame to look at that person with a sense of compassion and say within your heart, I don't know what has hurt you so deeply to make you react this way, but I'm so sorry. That's not normal. That's not something that we do naturally in the flesh. That is a miraculous work of the Spirit. Because you realize as you are relating to who we are within the body of Christ that we're not just friends and acquaintances. From a biblical perspective, we are family. That's why Paul goes on and says, so treat each other with a brotherly love. Again, Paul helps define this in Romans 12, 10 when he writes, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Here's what it looks like. Give preference to one another in honor. You see, it's a sincere desire for the highest good of another person, even if that means putting aside your own personal preferences. Choosing to be kind-hearted instead of being critical. Once again, Paul helps define this in Ephesians 4.32 when he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the idea behind what James says when he says, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Giving someone the benefit of the doubt instead of assuming the worst in other people. Which will only happen if we have that final characteristic that Peter highlights when he says, be humble, walk in humility. 
Instead of being self-serving, we are called to be self-sacrificing, considering the needs of others as, as more important than our own. As Paul describes in Ephesians 4, 2, be with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Peter is making the point that, that biblical faithfulness is an outflow of biblical community, that our internal unity is what determines our external witness. And we cannot have an impact in the world around us if we're not living in the bond of peace within us. Because we simply cannot endure difficulty on our own. You see, isolation, self-sufficiency, those are ultimately traps set by the enemy. He wants us to separate ourselves. We were talking the other day in our, one of our small groups at the men's retreat about what are some of the early signs that you're, you're, it is not well with your soul, right? That, that maybe you're not drawing in close to the Lord. And one of the things that came up repeatedly was isolation. I separate myself. Another one was discontentment, comparison. These are traps that are set by the enemy, and yet, Peter is calling us to, to something different. We're designed to flourish within the interdependent relationships within the body of Christ. In other words, again, we stand together. That's how we are ultimately able to stand strong. Because our character is shaped within the context of Christian community. But I want to offer a caution here before we move on from verse 8, because I think it's easy for us to, to approach a verse like this, and, and we look at a list of attributes, and I've done this with the fruit of the Spirit, and this is a similar example where we look at this and go, you know, I think he's right. I need to be more kind-hearted. I need to be more sympathetic, so I'm going to work on that. I just need to tell you right up front, it's not going to go well, okay? It's not going to happen. The goal is not to become a more loving person. The goal is to become a person who is more deeply loved. Do you see the difference? One is something that you are receiving. You are giving out to others out of the overflow of what you've received from him. Because these are characteristics that don't originate with us. This is not a part of the natural human heart. This is the outcome of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is only possible when that Spirit is at work within us and we are responding to Him. These characteristics only flow out of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And what is cultivated in the church is ultimately what bears fruit in the world. Look at how he illustrates that in verse 9. He speaks to this. He says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Peter began by this internal reality, how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. And now he looks outside of the church and how we relate to those in the world. This is the godly character of someone who is being treated with contempt. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. But it doesn't just end there. But give a blessing instead. 
And let's be honest, again, there's no part of our humanity that wants to respond like this. We flinch in the flesh. That's our natural instinct. What we're to be, what's being described here is a miraculous work of the Spirit. Jesus actually spoke about this on the Sermon on the Mount. Really, his first message to the people as he came to introduce the kingdom of God to the, to the world. And within that, I need you to understand that he's not describing how someone gets into the kingdom. Instead, what he's talking about is what it looks like when the kingdom is inside someone else, when it's inside of you. And when that happens, here's what he says. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, he's describing it. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Peter might say, evil for evil, insult for insult. But I say to you, Jesus said, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, then give him your coat as well. Whoever forces you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your, only your brothers, and, and, and what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I want you to imagine sitting in the audience that day when Jesus is giving his very first sermon and you're hearing there's words, and if you're anything like me, you're thinking, there's no possible way I can do what he just said, right? I, I can't be perfect as God is perfect. There's nothing within me that fits what Jesus just said, and that's the point. That was the message of the sermon. This is a miraculous work of the Spirit when God's kingdom resides in us. It's a reflection of what rules your heart. As Elizabeth Elliot once said, when the will of man collides with the will of God, somebody has to die. Somebody has to die. Because none of what Peter described exists in us. It's only possible because of Christ in us. Isn't what Peter Highlighting just a few verses ago when he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he says, talking about Jesus, when reviled, did not revile in return. When treated with evil, he didn't return with evil. When treated with insult, he didn't return with insult. And make no mistake, in his humanity, Jesus felt every ounce of the pain of those insults, the torture but he did not respond according to the flesh. Instead, he relied on the Holy Spirit just like you and I must do. Because this is not about what we do for God. This is all about what God has done in us. That's why Paul confesses in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. 
Okay? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faithful obedience is not fulfilled through religious obligation. It is a willing surrender, not a reluctant compliance. Because we have to relinquish our rights in order to love our enemies. Praying for those who persecute us leaves no room for pride. This is a supernatural love that does not originate with us. In fact, it's the love by which we were saved. We know that because of Romans 5.10, right? Where it says, for if while we were what? Enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The very same love that was extended to us is what we are called to extend to our enemies. Because like Jesus did for us, we give them not what they deserve, but what they need. Look at how Peter continues in verse 10. Quoting from Psalm 34, he says, The one who desires life, to love and to see good days may keep his tongue must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit he must turn away from evil and do good he must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer but the face of the faith of the lord is against those who do evil as i mentioned this is a quotation really directly from psalm 34 which must be one of peter's favorites because he's already alluded to the very same psalm back in chapter 2 this is a psalm written by david not ironically but purposefully during a season of humiliation and distress it's during a time when he's been running for his life from saul It was during a time, really written immediately following a time that he had to pretend to be insane in order to escape from the Philistines. So now, here's David, having been rejected by his own people, humiliated in front of his enemies, but he doesn't use any of this as an excuse to compromise his convictions. Instead, what does he say? A righteous man keeps his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. He's doing what Peter is calling us to, choosing to do what is right, even when being treated wrongly by others. He says, turn away from evil and do good. Just like we see in our passage, David is saying, give them what they need, not what they deserve. Doing good towards others who seek to do harm towards you. And David actually lived this out. You'll remember the encounter when when Saul ends up in the cave where David's been hiding. You remember this, right? This was David's chance to end the unjust opposition that he had been enduring. His own men even looked at him and said, look, the Lord's delivered him into your hands. This is your chance in this right now. And David refused. Because he is unwilling to raise his hand against the man God has anointed as king. Instead of listening to his men, he listened to his heart, doing good to the one who sought to do harm to him. Pursuing peace with his enemy 
instead of seeking revenge. And you may remember in this biblical account, it was in this moment that Saul stopped pursuing David. It ended on this day. But David didn't do this because he was a good man. This wasn't religious obligation. It really sincerely was a heartfelt devotion to the Lord, doing what is right in the eyes of God and relying on the Spirit as the source of his strength. It was true for David, it was true for Jesus, and it's true for us. But there's no part of us in this passage that can be fulfilled in our own strength. Our gut reaction is opposition. It's self-protection. We, we flinch in the flesh. But the response of the Spirit is self-sacrifice. How we respond reveals what rules our heart. The flesh or the Spirit. Just this last week, we had a really good discussion in our region small group. We've been talking about forgiveness and amends, and we went back and we remembered how forgiveness is really a, a transaction between us and God. It really doesn't even involve the other person. It, it's taking the bitterness that we feel and the debt that is owed to us, and instead of harboring that on our own, it's choosing to give it to God, letting Him do what is just and right and taking that responsibility from ourselves and entrusting it to him. That's forgiveness. Amends is different because amends now has something to do with the harm you've caused towards another person. So we should pursue peace with that person, taking responsibility for our sin, making restitution when possible in the hope of reconciliation. And that makes sense when it's something that we have clearly done towards another person. But then the question came up. But what about when you've done something to someone, but you didn't intend it to be a harm? Maybe they misunderstood something that you said or misinterpreted something that you did. Do, do you still make amends for something that you really technically didn't do? I think based on what we see on this passage... You absolutely do. We're called to give up our right to be right for the sake of restoring relationships with others. It's a willingness to say, look, I'm sorry. I can absolutely see how that would be hurtful. Would you please forgive me? Making no effort to give an excuse, to provide a reason to explain how they might have misinterpreted it because reconciliation is more important than being right. It's the same idea. If we want to get technical about it, it's really, I think, the same idea when it comes to persecution because persecution at its core is a response to a perceived harm. So even as believers in a, in a world that doesn't agree with maybe the, the system, belief system that we hold to, they're opposed to Christianity because they believe it, it is a potential harm to society. It's too narrow. It's too exclusive. It, it leaves out other belief systems. And so it's easy to see that, that really that at its core is what persecution is telling us. But instead of defending our position, explaining how everyone is wrong, 
we are called to love our enemy. Instead of defiance against opposition, we are called to submission to God. Doing good toward those who intend to do harm. Pursuing peace instead of seeking revenge. And as I was thinking about this, and and you can take this for what it's worth and determine it for yourselves, but it made me think about the events that took place at the cross the day that Jesus was crucified. And particularly, I was thinking of the centurion. Because the centurion was there and maybe even participated in, but at the very least witnessed all the torture, all the insults, all the pain and agony that Jesus endured at the hands of evil people. And yet, in the midst of this, this centurion heard him pray, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And I just wonder if that's what convinced the centurion to confess, surely this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, what you are calling us to is beyond what we are capable of. We cannot do this in our own strength. Everything we read within us, there is this uh, fleshly flinch. When we respond to, to, to the idea of, of, of being good to those who intend to do harm or, or praying for our, those who persecute us or loving our enemies, it's, it's just counterintuitive to our human nature. And that's the point. It's only possible when we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that we do. It has to be something that you do in us and through us. This is all about submission to you so that you can work through us. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Lord, I I ask that that would be all of our prayers. As we relate to one another, I pray that we are willing to put down our right to be right for the opportunity to reconcile a relationship within the body of Christ. Father, as it relates to how we relate to our enemies, I I pray that you would protect us from seeing them with such, with despise in our heart, but instead would would have compassion. What what has hurt them so deeply that has caused them to respond like this? Lord, would you help us not respond in the flesh, but be led by the Spirit to demonstrate your love in ways that we cannot on our own. This is not about me. It is all about Christ in me. And so, Lord, may we live that out faithfully as we put our trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Again, that when I look at these passages every week, I look at them just like you do. And honestly, when I read our passage, I first thought was, how am I going to preach something that I don't think is possible? I mean, I honestly read the words and think, this doesn't seem very realistic at all. And I have to wrestle with it and come to the same conclusion that we did here this morning is it's not possible. There's nothing that we can conjure up inside of us to be faithful to these words. This is a miraculous work of the Spirit. And so please don't walk away this morning with a list of things that you need to do. 
I need to be more kind-hearted. I need to be more simple. Do not do that. Let me give you one thing you need to do, and I compel you with all that is within me to do this one thing. Go be with Jesus. Go sit at the feet of our Savior. Go linger in his presence, and don't be in a hurry to leave. And let's just see if we flood our hearts and our lives with the person and work of Jesus Christ, if he doesn't in fact change us to do the things that this passage tells us to do and we didn't even realize it happened. Not because of me, not because of you, but because of Christ in us, amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your patience. (laughs) Because I can tell you I've failed on every single one of those things we've read in our passage this morning. And yet you're gracious and you're kind. I think you lovingly just come alongside us and say, trust me, be with me. Allow me to work in you and through you. This is not what we do for God. This is what God does in us. So Lord, have your way so that what we see being imaged out of our life and how we relate to one another and to those who are our enemies, that it would reflect the one who truly rules our hearts, our minds, and our lives, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who even in the moment of his greatest agony said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Surely he is the Son of God. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good day.